You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I love this cartoon because you see in the front and center, it's in the bowling alley, but you're looking at it from the point of view of the ball coming at you. And it's knocking over these pins. Each pin at its head has one of a number of Democratic congressmen serving in Congress in the 1890s. When you look down the alley, you can see at the end a very large man with his hand having obviously just cast this big bowling ball at his opponents, scattering them with very little resistance. This is what happened January 29th, 1890. It's a new speaker, Thomas B. Reed from Maine, and the House considers a contested election in West Virginia. The Republicans want the Republican candidate to be seated. The Democrats want to block this. And they have a weapon that they can use. In the House, members, if they wanted to deny the other side a quorum, they would simply not be present, even though they were sitting right there in the House chamber. Charles Crisp from Georgia, Democratic leader, he's going to be speaker later, moves to consider the action on this uh, West Virginia congressman. They're ready to deny a quorum and block it. The vote's taken. All of the Democrats sit silently in their seats. When their names are called, they say nothing. Republicans respond, but it's not enough for a quorum. Reed then makes his move. The chair directs the clerk to record the following names of the members present and refusing to vote. Reed begins to call the names of Democrats who are not voting. Crisp gets up goes down to the House floor directly in front of the Speaker and shouts, I appeal from the decision of the chair. It's crazy on the House of the floor. There's shouting, there's whooping, there's booing, there's cheering. One Democrat, William Breckinridge, is recognized. I deny the power of the Speaker and denounce it as revolutionary. Now there are all of these members whose names are being called, leaving their seats and going down to the center of the House in front of the Speaker's desk, shouting, shaking their fists, doing whatever they can to drown out the action of the House. Another congressman says, I deny your right, Mr. Speaker, to count me as present when I have not done so. I desire to read from the parliamentary law on that subject. Speaker Reed looks at him. The chair is making a statement of the fact that the gentleman from Kentucky is present right in front of me. Does he deny it? This led to laughter among the Republican side, booze from the Democrats. As things quiet down more, Speaker Reed explains his decision. Look, the Constitution says, if we need to, we can get the Sergeant of Arms and compel members 
to come to this house to provide a quorum, to do their duty. If you can come here but not attend, that would be in the Constitution, and it's not. The chair thereupon rules that there is a quorum present within the meaning of the Constitution. Charles Crisp responds, I appeal to your fairness as a man, Mr. Speaker. Gentlemen, I appeal to all of your fairness as men to give us simply an opportunity to reply to the arguments which the Speaker has seen proper to make. These rulings have been made in the House for a hundred years. We are not present. We don't have to be present. We can't be compelled. There's a debate, and it's going to continue for a few days. This is, um, and I'm going to quote Robert Romeni, the House. This is going to be one of the most tumultuous scenes. Roll call after roll call produce similar results. The Democrats don't answer. Reed pronounces them present anyway, then declares a quorum. I denounce you, shouted Richard Bland of Missouri at the Speaker, as the worst tyrant that ever ruled over a deliberative body. They call him a despot. They call him a czar. Thomas Reed is 300 pounds, 6 feet tall. Doesn't take a lot of guff from people. When uh, one Democrat later on issues Speaker Reed a challenge, beginning stage of a dual process for some fancied slight, Reed walked up to Bailey and said, Joe, don't be a damn fool. That ended the affair. Reed was against capital punishment, which for this time was a strange position, but he just felt like on certain issues, the country has moved on in old traditions and old and old laws didn't have to remain. Before the battle over the not being present filibuster that Reed had been involved, quashing motions that were just designed to delay things, and he would only hear as speaker those motions that were actually relevant to the legislation. And his rule won't last forever. In fact, he'll end up getting on the other side of his own caucus, vociferous opponent of the Spanish-American War. Romini says, as Democrats threatened to leave the chamber, the Speaker ordered the doors locked. The angered representatives then tried hiding under the desks to avoid being seen and counted. Finally, the Republicans were able to muster a quorum without the Democrats, even bringing two members in on stretchers, and Reed's ruling was approved. The battle ended. The best system, Reed said, is to have one party govern and the other party watch, and on general principles... I think it would be better for us to govern and the Democrats to watch. It's going to have impacts on tariffs, on spending legislation. You're going to have the first billion-dollar budget in American history, to which Reed's going to say this is a billion-dollar country. Norms get broken. So, a president didn't go to an inauguration. That's pretty new. You know, you're going back to Andy Johnson, 1868, with that one. Even... People like Lincoln and Buchanan, who may have not have seen eye to eye. Hoover and FDR did it grudgingly. Ike and Truman went out there on the portico, you know, <laughs> went out there on the steps of the Capitol and the like. Um, okay, so it's a norm broken. On the other hand, um, it's not big of a deal. He reasoned in his world, in his political world, that uh, there wasn't an advantage to doing so. It doesn't mean that he's right. Like, for instance, so if the calculus is this, I'm not going to go because I don't even want to lend one bit of credence to that new president's administration. You know, me behind him clapping or shaking his hand 
And then when he implements a healthcare program that's foreign to me, or he packs the Supreme Court or DC statehood or things I don't agree with, why should I give him that ounce, even if it's just an ounce of credibility? Now, that's the possible mentality here, okay? That's one side of it. It's not perfect, though, because otherwise you could say, yeah, hit the button every time, play to the wall, push the envelope, right? However, you might be losing points because of the lack of perceived lack of civility with other moderates who might have been persuadable. So it's a calculus. We've got problems, but we've always had problems, some buried under the surface or not visible, not as front and center as others. Politics is a mesh of desires. It's a want of control. If you're trying to control yourself, that's self-control. You work on yourself and your discipline. But politics is about the control of others, whether it's for a noble reason or not. And it's very important to Americans. There's been a desire to avoid control over us. States, screamed Walt Whitman. States, were you looking to be held together by the lawyers? By an agreement on paper? Or by arms? Walt Whitman couldn't benefit from literal singing, nor does he have rhyme to rely on to push his lyrics, so he had to insert words with punch. Away! I arrive bringing these beyond all the forces of courts and arms. These, to hold you together as firmly as the earth is held together, the old breath of life ever new. Here, I pass it by my contact to you, America. Mother, he means Mother Columbia, have you done much for me? Behold, there shall from me be much done for you, a new friendship. Whitman's sing-songy approach belies the fact that America is falling apart as he writes this, another one of many revisions to his Leaves of Grass poem in 1860. Affection shall solve every one of the problems of freedom. Those who love each other shall be invincible. It's quite a novel idea. The breaking union, South Carolina seceding, shall be quelled by love. Missourians, Carolinians, and Oregonese, Whitman says, shall be friends, triune, in a triad of states living together. He was right, and in a way, the old good gray poet, the country broke apart, but with some government, and eventually came back together. We got problems now, I think, but not insurmountable, not entirely new problems. Accelerated, definitely. By new technologies, we're still figuring out. They were given to us before we truly figured them out. But maybe these problems have always been there. Violence in politics, tensions around free speech, distrust of the political system, skepticism about media sources, and extreme balkanization of media sources. Not fully trusting either one of the two political parties, nor the people that run them nor the people that occupy offices. All of them arrive in new forms, these problems, but have been seen through history. You can't view politics as some kind of, oh, it should be like this, without accepting more of a total view, that there are millions of other people saying, oh, it should be like this. Donald Trump's election in 2016 and his defeat in 2020 confirms that there is no linear arc of history towards some one type of politics. America's two main parties have traded pretty evenly 
as it turns out. And 2020, that election means that in this first quarter of a new century, the White House is guaranteed to be split between Republicans and Democrats. Today in San Francisco, a free speech rally came to an abrupt end. Tonight on ABC7, we hear from the organizer, now recovering from a punch that knocked out his teeth. Des Moines Black Lives Matter says some of its members are now banned from the statehouse for a year. It comes after a confrontation between protesters and law enforcement at the statehouse yesterday. We think we've got problems with free speech, but it's always been problematic. No matter how strongly it is an American value, and it is, I'm talking to you via technology that didn't really exist before 2003. It's an extension of the blogging technology, which itself was novel. By last count, my host, which is Libsyn, tells me that he has over 40,000 podcasts in that host alone, the number one host. 40,000 podcasts. There are so many people able to speak about topics and be heard. Free speech is a problem, but it's always been a problem. The second administration of the United States put limits on newspapers and jailed editors. It was also a scary time where there are some major powers that we were afraid could sail up the Delaware River and occupy the American capital. Much larger powers than we. Washington and Adams struggled with the difference between a newspaper where Americans could speak and articles written that seemed to undermine the very form of government in America. The constant attacks that there would be media forms that would simply be in a position of opposition on about 99% of things. But that's immediately what happened. Abigail Adams to Thomas Jefferson in 1804, and not the only comment she made about the press. This is about a particular pressman. When such vipers are let loose upon society, all distinction between virtue and vice are leveled. All respect for character is lost in the overwhelming deluge. That respect, what's lost is that respect which is necessary to bind the social union, which gives efficacy to laws and teaches the subject to obey the magistrate and the child to submit to the parent. There's a lot of people that wouldn't agree with that today, but that was a thinking about the press that presumably John Adams shared as well, that it's really supposed to be there, yes, to debate policy and things like that, but not to break the social union. Washington feels the same way. He's almost run out of office by what he calls the infamous scribblers, and he has lots of complaints about the press, but applying bounds proves to have no effect. And Jefferson, you know, to some degree shares what Abigail Adams is saying, uh, except that uh, he finds that any laws, like the sedition law that was passed during the Adams administration, unconstitutional. But he said in other letters, newspapers present only the criticism of disaffected minds. But people will sort it out. They may safely be trusted to hear everything true or false and to form a correct judgment between them. You could add in the last lines there, we hope. Nor was there any magic middle where there was no fear of speaking or what it might affect it might have on government. You can draw a direct line from Washington's complaints about being called a Nero or being slandered in the press or Adam's fears and the enactment of the Alien and Sedition Acts, a direct line to 
Lincoln and his complaints about hawk-like reporters focusing endlessly on the problems of the Union Army, his actions banning pro-peace newspapers from the mails, having his army smash telegraph lines between the rebel capital, Richmond, which were used by the newspapers in the Union. Even a friendly newspaper, Henry Raymond, the New York Times, complained. He couldn't get news from the South directly. And the total and complete destruction by the Union Army of the Alexandria Gazette when that city was captured by Union troops. One of many examples of actions taken by Lincoln and his army during the war. Nor did it change later in World War I, the censorship of speech when people were talking about interrupting the draft in Schneck versus the United States, Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote of seditious anti-government propaganda that put the war draft as the evil of cunning politicians and mercenary capitalists that made a government policy an infamous conspiracy as something different from regular old media, from regular old free speech. Yes, Holmes, who was appointed by Theodore Roosevelt, said, we admit that in ordinary times, what was said in a circular would have been within their constitutional rights. But this is war. And the character of an act depends on the circumstances. The most stringent protection of speech would not, wait for it, protect a man in falsely shouting fire in a crowded theater and causing a panic. To buttress that, he reminds us of another decision, Aikens versus Wisconsin, where a group of newspapers engaged in truly legal action, simply deciding not to take on a customer. But they refused a customer because he did business with another newspaper. And that conspiracy was an antitrust action. Legality can be different because of the circumstances. So can the protection of free speech. That was his argument. He loosens up on it a little in later decisions. The tension would never end. This is my point. In the 1940s, a loud, obnoxious, he, Jehovah Witness protester, Chapinsky, calls the marshal of a town in Rochester, New Hampshire, a goddamn racketeer and a damned fascist. He's out in front of churches, protesting those churches, handing out flyers about Jehovah's Witness. He doesn't believe in the other churches. He thinks that they're all rackets, conspiracies, etc. And that marshal is enforcing the law. People are obviously upset. He is then arrested. New Hampshire had a law prohibiting intentionally annoying speech to anyone who is lawfully in a street or public area. You can't be intentionally offensive, more to the point, you can't use fighting words. And calling the marshal a fascist to his face on a sidewalk that's otherwise peaceful is something more than just expressing yourself. So says Justice Frank Murphy and a unanimous court, profanity slander designed to advocate an immediate breach of the peace is not protected. Later decisions have curtailed that. 1971, Cohen v. California. A man entered a courthouse wearing a F the draft shirt. He uh, didn't say F. In Cohen, the court said that shirt had an angry fighting words type message, but it didn't direct the comments at any particular person. Other decisions have clarified that person could mean a group. So a message against group could be the same as greeting and screaming at that town marshal. In RAV, or RAV versus City of St. Paul, 
Justices Scalia decision narrowed the fighting words doctrine a bit when he struck down a racial bias statute of the city of St. Paul, which banned the use of fighting words that could offend on the basis of race, color, creed, religion, or gender, or sexual orientation. R.A.V. was identified so because he was a teenager who, it was alleged, got a few pieces of wood and went to the neighbor's house across the street where an African-American family lived and burnt a cross. A horrible crime. Scalia makes clear in his decision he has no interest in burning of crosses, protecting the burning of crosses. His only point is that it's an overly broad law that applies to so much that they convicted him under and that they needed to narrow that law or it wasn't constitutional. Scalia says in his decision, Minnesota has many ways to punish this offender for various crimes he committed without throwing the First Amendment into the fire. But the court was still uncomfortable, and in Virginia v. Black, the court fixed its gaze once again on a cross-burning case, specifically upholding a Virginia law that narrowed the actions the law covered to this activity, banning this potent symbol of hate when a Klan member burned a cross on private property. And Virginia had a law against burning crosses. In SCOTUS circles, this is known for a rare event, for the manner that uh, Clarence Thomas spoke during oral argument, which is a rare event. Now, as I record this, Thomas is very often participating in discussions. Some speculate that he's more comfortable in the remote setting uh, or that the change in the court personnel is compelling him to speak more. But in any case, this was a rare event. Happened only once every couple of years. Thomas interrupts a lawyer during oral argument, which he normally doesn't participate in, and the whole court's silent. Which, if you listen to the oral arguments of the Supreme Court, you'll know that they don't often have to be. They're interrupting each other and firing questions away and cutting off lawyers and the like. Thomas says this, a burning cross is unlike any symbol in our society. There's no other purpose for the cross, no communication, no particular message. It was intended to cause fear and to terrorize a population. It is, in effect, a threat of violence. When a lawyer in the case defending the accused clan members compared burning the cross to burning the flag, which in a decision in the 1980s, Scalia and many of the court's liberals cited that a man burning the flag during the Republican convention in 1984 was on solid constitutional grounds. They abhorred his action, but he was on solid constitutional ground. So when the lawyer compares burning the cross to burning the flag, Ruth Bader Ginsburg spoke up in oral arguments and retorted that a flag is an obvious government symbol and burning the flag is an obvious anti-government speech, the very thing that is core to the purpose of the First Amendment. But burning a cross is threatening people, a specific group of people, and also threatening life and limb. Eventually, Thomas sided with the decision, just as you can't burn down your neighbor's house to make a political point and then seek refuge in the First Amendment, those who hate cannot terrorize and intimidate to make their point. That's 2003. Virginia v. Black, John Roberts, the current Chief Justice of the United States, is not on the court yet. When Roberts joins, free speech is quickly tested in a different case. 
the misguided folks at the Westboro Baptist Church, really a personal cult of a man named Fred Phelps at the time, began protesting Iraq War veterans' funerals, where they would hold signs attacking gays with uh, very strong language, offensive language, blaming the moral decline of America on the very soldiers. In reality, there's no other motive you can tie to it than that great media attention would come from anyone engaging in such a horrible act, protesting veterans' funerals. One family, the Snyder family, had to suffer during their son's funeral, the Westboro Church. They kept their distance as required, and the Snyder family sued Fred Phelps for millions of dollars in a defamation suit. The Supreme Court, in an 8-to-1 decision, threw out the defamation suit against Phelps and the Westboro Baptist Church. The cure for speech, Robert said, that we don't like is more free speech. This is a common refrain. Roberts is right. Of course he's right. It simply said, it can't be wrong generally to assert that the cure for speech is more free speech. If you don't like what someone's saying, you say something else. But we have to go back to Schneck at times. We have to go back to Chopinski. We have to go back to the fighting words. We have to go back to the context in which the speech occurs. One justice dissented, and that's Samuel Alito in that case. And I found his dissent to be interesting. I mean, I also find Robert's decision, to be clear, to be compelling. But I also find Alito's dissent to be compelling. Um, Alito made it clear, you know, The Westboro Church had engaged not in speech, but harassment, personal, hurtful, directed speech. Personal abuse is not permissible. The state has an interest in preventing personal abuse, harassment speech. The court, Alito alleged, had allowed the church members to launch a verbal attack on the Snyder family at a time of their greatest emotional vulnerability. They assert a right to brutalize Mr. Snyder. I cannot agree, nor can I. He doesn't directly say it, but in his dissent, Alito hints at the trauma caused to Mr. Snyder, the la- to Snyder, the lasting emotional injury of having this wacky church complaining about gay people as your relatives are coming into the funeral of an American hero. We should think about it too. Mental health was not a subject when the first was created. You know, it didn't factor in Snyder v. Phelps. That was an 8-1 decision. I'm citing you the dissent of one judge. And a judge that's a big supporter of free speech, by the way, in other cases. Uh, the first wasn't cited, It's but it's probably not the last we're going to see of that particular balancing act, trauma versus speech. All of this is not to present the legal history of the First Amendment. Um Maybe sometime I can do that with a two or three hour podcast. This is, but this does get to some of the core. It's not a complete, nor is it uh, trying to retry these old cases. It is to demonstrate this point that what seems cut and dry free speech has not always been so. It's been conflicted through history with, I would probably say, a lean towards the value, towards the principle of free speech but still conflicted through history. I think it's useful to go back to the time of the printing press and ink and the tensions, issues, complaints, and workarounds 
to realize that replacing ink were cursors. And obviously, too, replacing a fairly loose system of editorship and an establishment press with everybody being able to kind of print or publish or talk at the same time doesn't change any of these tensions about a free press. There were battles between presidents and press in the Nixon administration, Agnew going out there attacking TV networks, TV networks in some cases being a little intimidated not to cover demonstrations in the same way they had. In Obama's years in 2009, he gets into a big tussle with Fox News. I talked a lot about it at the, this podcast at the time, where some one Obama staffer said Fox News was treated as we would an opponent. We don't need to pretend that this is a legitimate news organization and how a legitimate news organization behaves. All of this is just to point out, I don't want to go through the litany of presidents in the press, which is huge. And I don't think you ever lose that line between that Abigail Adams is talking about. Who makes the decision of what a viper is and what a legitimate press is? Alexis de Tocqueville comes to America, and the first thing he reads, the first newspaper he picks up, he reads, you know, is calling the president of the United States, Andrew Jackson, a despot, a shameless and lawless gamester who will be obliged to disgorge his winnings and throw aside his false dice. That's the first newspaper he reads in America, and he's amazed. Tocqueville visits the U.S. from France, then writes a book, and Americans love to read it. Why do we like to read it? Well, it's early in our history, so we get a sense of what we were like in the past. We also get the sense of what an outsider who is craving democracy at a time that France is under the thumb of uh, Louis Napoleon II, and uh, really not a good time. So um, we like to read his thoughts. He also is a good analyst. Doesn't mean he's perfect. You'll hear the the the. The elevator speech of Tocqueville is like Tocqueville really regards that a free press is essential for democracy. And that's true. But that's not the complete thought. Because that kind of stuff makes him seem like it's some kind of stone carving or something and not something relevant to today. For him, the free press is absolutely mingled good and evil. The spirit of the journalist is to appeal crudely, directly, and artlessly to the passions of the people. Yet Tocqueville saw attention when it comes to the press. There really is no middle ground between servitude, a press wholly subservient to the state, and license, a press wholly unrestricted. In order to reap the priceless goods that derive from freedom of the press, one must learn to accept the inevitable evil that it breeds. But that evil is there. For Tocqueville, the people that want to remain free had to insist on the independence of the press. But he contextualizes the point. It's more that he likes the free press from the evil it presents than the advantages it ensures. There's no middle ground. We got problems. But let me assert that, in my opinion, free speech is not one of them. We have compared to history at present more free speech than ever before. More people experience free speech. More people obtain an audience than ever before. The average American has more places to speak than the 1980s, than the 1950s, than the 1910s, than the Civil War. 
compared to today's blizzard of blogs, videos, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, not to mention the increased facility for meetups, for group chats, for group videos, for text to direct assembly in an efficient fashion, much more efficient than the old days of mimeograph flyers, meet here to stop the war, held up by scotch tape or pins on bulletin boards or phone chains, activities limited to more specific places where people would actually gather, like union halls, student clubs, churches. This and much more improved protection of the right to protest recent decisions uh, just in the 1980s about protesting foreign embassies, restrictions on how far away you can be from what you're protesting. All of them decided in the favor of protesters. Protesting residences. We have problems and free speech is not one of them. There is an explosion of speech. You were listening to me, as I said earlier, on a platform that didn't exist 20 years before. I did not need to seek a rich printing press nor a radio station to reach you. If I had tried to do what I'm doing, this type of speech, this type of analysis, on the standard formats of radio, there is only a one in a million chance that you ever would have heard anything like this. The minimum wage worker, the student, the suburban mom, all of them can speak as much as the wealthy business person and be heard. It also means that people with, we disagree, but more than that, people who have just objectively bad intent, or that the majority would think is bad intent. So I don't want to be so both sides-ish to say like, oh, we can hear people we disagree with. No, you can also hear people that are plain wrong, who gave no thought at all to their speech, who gave no thought at all to the facts that they're allegedly citing. Of course that's happening. Compared to the speech options of 2021, though, we can chuckle at the letters to the editor the previous generations got, or public access TV, or the few instances where you happened upon a reporter doing a man-in-the-street interview. That was your chances to speak. They are pathetic compared to the speech that's going on in America 2021 today, and all of what's really happening is that you're experiencing it so much. That does not mean we are without questions or concerns around free speech. That mobs, real or social, can cancel speech by shouting them down, by telling others not to listen. If a speaker is not engaging in a very limited fighting words, in obscenity, in threats against people, in threats against a group, in slander, in all the forms that may take, Everyone should be rightly critical as an American in any kind of shouting down or drowning out of speech. Yet, with social media, the equation changes a bit. Some of the mob that hundreds are engaging in in their free speech, because everyone is able to speak, and, and, and at least in previous iterations of how speech worked, that didn't happen. So we can call it a mob of people, but it's a mob of people each speaking and saying, don't listen to this person. I don't agree, you can say, I don't want to hear you, or even don't listen to this person anymore. All of that is a form of speech. Let's examine free speech a bit more and look at some of its component parts. I think there's two additional components. We, we think about the speaker, right? We think about someone writing the tweet or standing on the soapbox. But there is another participant in speech for it to really happen. Presumably, 
it's not like the First Amendment doesn't protect you talking to the mirror in your bathroom, but it, it probably does. But it's certainly not what its purpose is or what it was written for. Wouldn't be a reason for it. So there must be another participant in the conversation that's important now and was just as important to the framers of the Constitution and those who insisted on this being one of the First Amendments. That is free speaking and free listening. Presumably, you can't have someone on a soapbox and have no government interference, allow them to speak their mind, but ban people from listening to that person or steal the audience away or have have the police arrest anyone who's listening to that speaker. Now, so it's embedded in the concept of free speech that there's free listening. You shouldn't uh, be interrupted in listening and not persecuted for listening to a free speaker if we are to have true free speech. It's only logical, I believe, to assume that a listener has rights, including the right not to listen, right? It would be just as much a violation to be forced to listen to something that you didn't want to listen to. That's not what happens in a democracy. You know, the president's about to speak. You don't have to listen. And while this might not need to be vocalized in the past or put into laws in an exact detail or put into statements of rights, it's simply obvious. The Ninth Amendment was created to ensure that no one reads the Bill of Rights as a be-all and end-all, the limit, that those specific first eight are the only ones. So there's other rights. Now, you can't just create rights and say, well, that's what's in the Ninth Amendment, but that's the way it's intended to be read. You can speak. I need not listen. I can use my speech to tell others not to listen. I can use my freedom of assembly to tell others in a group not to listen to you. They are free to ignore me or the message of the assembly I am in, telling them not to listen to you. They are free to listen to you anyway. Strictly speaking, every one of those things is free speech. Strictly speaking, cancel culture as it is thrown around in the discussion is not truly the problem that people are saying that it is. Should I do it? Would it be better to hold to the essence of the value and listen to a variety of opinions to, yes, hear the president out when the president's speaking, to read the news, to figure out what... Sure, those are all positive values. I admit it becomes problematic with advanced social networks or monetization. These are technologies, though, that are overall bringing more voices than ever compared to when monetization meant only... You could get monetization for your speech only if you impressed a group of executives, producers, editors, and where cancel culture was far more easy to do. All it meant was the yanking of a show or the yanking of a column in a newspaper. Just ask Jimmy the Greek. Just ask the Smothers Brothers or Norm MacDonald on Saturday Night Live. Then there's the more obvious specific bands. I'll, I'll provide you an example, even my own. My own podcast, the LBJ Nixon episode. Because of the way I wrote the show notes, it contained the word treason in it. What I had said is that nothing creates a good, warm relationship between president and president-elect like treason, charges of treason. It was meaning to be a little funny, uh, to get interest. Well, I could not post that LBJ Nixon transition episode on Facebook. 
it irked me, but I still go through a balanced test analysis. What is the goal? The major platform with millions of potential eyes decided it didn't want certain messages that just like Chapinsky would lead to fighting, the use of treason, the use of encouraging people that there's something treasonous happening. It's a balanced test, but it should irk. It should feel wrong, and it should be limited. The same with uh, the most obvious example. President Trump went from, he's been on Twitter since 2009, his tweets have been news since 2015, to being pulled off Twitter. On January the 6th, I had absolutely no issue with it. With a live insurrection happening, a group of people attacking the Capitol, uh, presumably using phones, using communication, looking to what instructions they're getting, had absolutely no problem with that platform removing those tweets or even turning them off for the day. Like everybody else, as it goes on, I have more wonder about it, if it's correct. I'm not saying it's not. Twitter is a private company. It has rules and it enforces its rules on others who are not president and may have been giving the president leeway. Uh, But let's balance that. One argument quite often said is that the First Amendment only applies to governments. This is literally true, but the discussion shouldn't stop there. If a company said that you had to vote Republican or be fired or put on a GOP bumper sticker or Democratic bumper sticker on your car or be fired, you know, we'd seriously object to that and Congress didn't do anything. I think I'm troubled a little when I hear hear that because it's it's true the first amendment applies to government but if we don't think of it as also representing a core american value is not a little crazy american free speech is important republican government requires citizens to be free in their speech to allow criticism of the government when it's potentially doing something bad it implies the fact that it's sitting there in the Bill of Rights, that it's an American value, and it's obviously something we should be moving towards and not against in the areas that aren't regulated by Congress. So we have problems, but we speak a lot, and bubbles so often criticize that everyone's uh, there's an America in their bubbles because the various applications seem to sort it that way. Bubbles are not one of them, or at least not one of them historically. There's less bubble, in my opinion, than ever before. Americans are more speechified, they're more mobile, they're more connected. And there was no magic time of an Athenian America where people loved hanging out with people that they didn't agree with and listening with people that they didn't agree with and listening to those opinions and sitting and considering them rejectedly and never introducing into the conversation something like, you're crazy. Americans have more access today than in the past to bicker with opponents, and many people spend large amounts of time doing so. I don't have statistics on it, but I would say that if you compared us to the 1980s America, political arguing as an activity, the time percentage spent on that is up and up and up. We have problems. Bubbles aren't one of them. Through much of American history, newspapers were Republican organs. The purview of small-town businessmen, 
with the exception of in the South, where the situation was often reversed. There, newspapers were generally Democratic, and the reverse was true. You couldn't find much of a mention of what the Republicans were doing, and certainly if it was, not in any positive light. In the 1936 election, the lion's share nearly 80% of American newspapers endorsed Alf Landon, the governor of Kansas, running for president against Franklin Roosevelt and running for his second term. Alf Landon had no popular support, would win only two states, Maine and Vermont. But newspapers in many states that voted for Franklin Roosevelt endorsed Landon. If there were ever bubbles, it existed before. And anyone who had been born, um, and if anything, bubbles have been burst by the internet, which knows no AM radio range, knows no circulation limits. John F. Kennedy used television and a large number of press conferences to get over the heads of Republican editors and newspapers. Nixon and Reagan used the same device to get over the heads of more Democratic-leaning newspapers that covered events in Washington, talking about the Post. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So how does a history podcast deal with the fact that there's new events? But I've been saying that since 2006, that the new events don't change the fact that we can still use history to learn and to understand what we're up against and to sometimes see that even what we think is new isn't new. So we'll look at different episodes in history where things changed where the change was at least at that time considered pretty significant. And people even used some pretty hefty language to describe the events. In 1795, Washington is president His administration, notably John Jay, negotiates a treaty with Great Britain. And politically, it's one of those hot potatoes. It was something that most likely the country had to do, but it offered no political benefits whatsoever for the administration or the people that would be doing it. We call this the Jay Treaty, and it would cause a lot of trouble. Really, you can think of it as the Hamilton Treaty. Hamilton's all for it. Washington wants Hamilton to negotiate with the British. Hamilton suggests, look, 
I've already got enough attached to my name. If you attach me to this, it probably won't pass. John Jay is a blank slate right now politically. Chief Justice just about to assume the governorship of New York. Pretty popular guy. It's not the best deal that the Americans could have gotten ideally, but the British weren't interested in giving Americans the best deal. They didn't think this new country, just, you know, seven years into having a constitution, 20 years of independence, was really in any good position to be dictating terms to their former mother country, the empire of the world. So, you know, it does a couple of things. It opens the Mississippi River to both countries, so there'll be no interference. The British still have a number of forts in the Northwest Territories of the United States. They will leave them by 1796. It opens up trade between Americans and the British West Indies. However, it limits the size of ships to very small ships that can make the voyage. Okay, so there's a lot that the U.S. is giving. There's not a lot that the British are giving in this treaty. Nothing, for instance, about the British interfering with our shipping if we're trading with their enemy, France. See, France and Britain are at war at this time. And that's the other thing about this whole Jay Treaty. By doing this treaty, America is also taking a position because France's position is we already have an alliance with you. That's the Franco-American alliance during the Revolutionary War. That's still in effect. So if you sign a treaty with Britain... You're going to turn us into your enemy. But for the moment, let's not focus on international implications of the early American Republic. Let's talk about the politics. As we said, there's really no benefit to Washington, to being for it, to Hamilton, to John Jay, to any of the Federalists. Washington says it's not favorable, the treaty, but it's better than unsettled conditions. And they're setting up the Federalists for the opponents, the Republicans, the early critics of the Washington administration, and the scores of newspapers that were critical, they're just opening themselves up for criticism. There's a Boston Gazette. The British Parliament was the den of Cyclops. And Britain, Beelzebub, per Republican writer James Blake, writing in the Boston Gazette. They brood in mischief and meditate on our destruction. Treaty with the old enemy was destined to throw up politics. Up until now, you could say the Federalists were winning in the early going since the Constitution was passed. Washington's sitting at the helm. Anything that he supports is still popular with the American people. Majorities are supporting his administration in the Senate. There's choppy, but still some support for the administration in the House. The opposition Aurora newspaper saw in this treaty the opportunity to switch up the politics by going to the core of the motives of the federal government. Here's what uh, Belisonius says, a writer in one of these newspapers. The treaty was an instrument so deeply subversive of Republican government, of Republicanism, and destructive to every principle of free representative government. Washington senses this opposition keeps the treaty's terms secret and wants the debate to happen within the Senate chamber and secret. Washington's no stranger to this. He convened the Constitutional Convention. He chaired it, and he had sentries at the door and windows closed so that people could talk and discuss and come to a solution before it got public. The senators debated. Aaron Burr is a senator from New York at this time. He wants the Senate to say not no, but to send it back to Washington and ask him to renegotiate. Washington's not going to do this Some Southern senators 
are objecting to the Jay Treaty. They want British compensation for what they did during the Revolution, freeing some of their slaves. But it's Stephen Thomas Mason who decides that he cannot keep the debate secret among just the Senate. The people, he said, should have a full and accurate knowledge of what's going on. It's been too secret for too long already. And he leaked his copy of the proposed Jay Treaty to the Aurora Opposition newspaper. He does this on July 1st. They print it right before the July 4th celebrations that are going to be all over the country. Protests begin in streets. There's bonfires. There's effigies of Jay. Effigies of Hamilton. Even effigies of Washington in some cases. His own reputation attached to this treaty. This heckling of officials. Washington's house in Philadelphia, right in front of where Independence Hall is, they've got that modeled out now, is surrounded. In a New York City street, Alexander Hamilton is advocating for the treaty among a group of people, New York business merchants, and is shouted down and heckled. It's a dangerous situation. A ratification, Federalist note, could threaten the popularity of Washington. And this isn't just like today's approval ratings. Washington's popularity is essential to holding the Union together. But it also threatens evil commotions, disruptions among the people. Washington, in the end, had to make this call. He signs the treaty with a very minor concession. He'll go back and ask Great Britain for changing that weight limit on ships that can trade with the British West Indies but no other parts of the treaty. In fact, he'll sign the treaty and simply ask for the change. 20 years peace, he reckons, will enable us to defy Britain later if we have to. But now it would be ruinous to the great mass of citizens to have war with Britain. Official notice of the treaty comes out on February 1796, and Washington, he releases it right after we also negotiate a very popular treaty with Spain. Good news and bad news. The other good news that comes in is the British agree to removing that weight limit. So there will be trade with the British Caribbean. But Jefferson and many others thought that in doing this, the whole Federalist experiment would come down. The whole idea of a large centralized American government versus a group of Republican governments. They've gotten themselves into a debacle where they might be finished. It passes the Senate. And all should be done. It's a treaty, and according to the Constitution, treaties are approved by the president with the consent of the Senate. The Senate has consented to this Jay Treaty. But there's still considerable opposition, opposition that opponents considered normal criticism. But Washington saw as poison. The opposition opens up a new front, not considered, that the House of Representatives, not constitutionally part of the treaty decisions, could hold up things by holding up funding for items related to the treaty. And they decide to ask the president for more information about the negotiations of the treaty, how they came to this decision, what was proposed to the British, what was said, all of the letters, all of the papers. Washington immediately opposes this new request. It's the president and the Senate that decide on treaties. Anything else would render the treaty-making power in the Constitution a nullity. Oliver Ellsworth, Chief Justice of the United States, does something that is not a norm today, is not something that you will 
a chief justice do today? He weighs in early and says, if this comes to us at the Supreme Court, we will say that a signing of a treaty and approval by the Senate binds the House to fund it. It's a decision of the government that the House must fund. In taking a stand against the House and refusing to provide the requested document, Washington stood on his personal position and popularity with the American people. Furthermore, he does a leak of his own, and he reveals that one of his key opponents in this battle, James Madison, who's the leader of the Republican Party in the House, working, writing letters, getting instructions and advice from Jefferson, Madison, when he was in the Constitutional Convention, had supported the idea that the president and the Senate's control over treaties was exclusive. More to the point, it was voted by a majority of states in that convention that this would be the case. Everyone knew because Madison and the rest of the convention rejected a specific proposal to do what they were saying was a power now, to require a statute that would have to be passed by both houses of Congress for every treaty. Madison was arguing that if you said that a treaty power compelled the House to fund something, then you were compelling them to approve a possible war and to approve budget funds, which were in their powers. They were giving up powers. But this was the opposite of what he had said in the convention and what he had approved in the convention, and Washington knew it. Washington's leak of the notes of the convention is significant because he had been the chair of the convention and kept everything secret. And presumably those discussions were not to make. Madison has no other response than to make an interesting comment that the convention notes are not an oracle that the convention notes are just something that is a group of people met to send a document that would have to be ratified by the states. Why not look at all the state ratifying conventions? Now, that's an interesting interpretive note, especially when you consider that Madison, along with Jay and Hamilton, is one of the authors of the Federalist Papers, so often cited as how to interpret the Constitution, right? But he's also said during his lifetime, that you shouldn't just use the convention and, and the people that are there as the judge of what the Constitution means. Federals cried foul and said that Madison's activities here will plunge him into infamy, arguing against his own position at the convention. Everyone's breaking what seemed like at the time the rules of federal politics for what seemed like an existential question. Can the republic survive free of influence on its own, independent? And for Republicans, that meant independent from Britain. And for Federalists, that meant independent of starvation, of lack of commerce. Could it remain prosperous and independent of France? The House Republicans had in Madison a formidable party warrior. And the other side needed to step up. Treaty wasn't a great thing to stand on. Hamilton, uh, per Ron Chernow, really said this was a matter of taking half a loaf rather than no bread at all. Not the best issue to go with. They had to find a way to make their case as emotional as Republicans were. And they had to find a person to do it. And they found that person in the form of Massachusetts Congressman Fisher Ames. Ames was one of the most eloquent Federalists, and he knew how to make a point. Forget about constitutional points. Forget about Washington's power versus the Senate's power versus the House's power. Forget about what Madison said in the Constitutional Convention. That isn't going to change votes. Even the mechanisms of the treaty aren't important. It's about this. Opponents 
They are saying they want war with Britain and Britain's Indian allies. It wasn't true. That was true enough. Some protesting folks, some of them around Washington's house were actually saying war with Britain. That's not what was being said by congressmen, by Madison or Jefferson or any of them, but by some of the folks. Ames goes to Congress Hall. Now, this is if you're at Independence Hall, if you go to Philadelphia and visit, and you're facing the clock tower, let's say the front of the building, from the mall, on your right, that's that building you're going to see. This is where Congress met. House at the bottom, upper house, Senate at the top. The lobby of this building was a popular place to have speeches. There, Fisher Ames begins a speech that would take 55 pages. He'll make this speech and many papers will then print it, as happened then. By many accounts, the ladies and the gentlemen of the city showed up. Vice President Adams was there. The Chief Justice was there. Numerous officials all joined to hear, as well as congressmen and newspaper reporters. This, by many accounts, was the largest crowd that any had ever seen in Philadelphia. Fisher Ames begins by understanding the points of treaty opponents. We hear it said that this is a struggle for liberty, manly resistance against the treaty forced down our throats. Suggestions of this kind, however, are unfair and illogical. They're just emotional. They cannot be reasoned down because, Ames said, no one ever reasoned them up. They aren't real arguments. They're fantastic arguments. They are higher than a Chinese wall in truth's way and built of materials that are indestructible. Ames followed this call for a logical debate with a lengthy appeal to emotion. His opponents noticed that too. The Republican Argus paper would say after his speech, having artfully stated the intention to be an appeal to the understanding of his audience without appealing to other passions, he began with astonishing inconsistency to do nothing, to leave the field of reason and do nothing but address the fears and feelings of his audience. Yet if your opponents are crying foul over the methods they in fact use, well, you might be winning. He starts with little bits at it attacking the integrity of opponents. How could we break our faith? What kind of people would we be if we did that? What kind of mark on a people, more turpitude and debasement could be made if we don't live up to our obligations? The House might as well repeal the Ten Commandments. Then he appealed not just to men, but their constituents, a group they pretended to care about, but weren't treating very nicely. See, Many Republicans were getting support from people on the fringes of the United States territory, the settlers. Western Pennsylvania will now be considered Ohio, Western New York, Western Virginia. If I could find words, Ames said, I would swell my voice to reach the log cabin inhabitants. By this he means the people on the frontier. I would say, wake, wake from your false security. Your imagined dangers, your cruel apprehensions are soon to be renewed. The wounds yet unhealed are to be torn open. And one day, walking in your path in the woods, you will be ambushed. And the darkness of midnight will glitter with the blaze of your dwellings. But Ames goes further. I'm not imagining this. I can fancy that I listen to the yells of savage vengeance, the shrieks of torture by rejecting the post that Britain is providing. We, Congress, light the savage fire. We, Congress, bind the victims. That's it. 
don't sign this treaty, there's going to be Indian attacks on your frontier constituents. And what's more, we did it. Men in the audience were in tears. According to the account of one New Hampshire congressman, Republicans were struck. Of course, they were enraged at his argument. The New York Argus said, if this is the type of emotion that will be the basis of important decisions in America, we are ready for a dictatorship. Of course, the Argus had also printed many emotional appeals on political issues. Then Ames warned, innocent slumbers of the cradle must be again be disturbed by the war whoop of Indians. A New Hampshire congressman said when he was listening to Ames, all I could think of was my child tomahawked. The speech was effective, and the reaction to it was sudden. Congressman quickly moved to table in the wake of Ames' speech. The approval of funds and the dismissal of the request to Washington for papers won narrowly in the House. The combination of Washington's personal appeal, his ethos, Hamilton's defense of the commercial benefits of the treaty, the little concession secured from Britain, but also mixed with Ames's blood-curdling, got the job done. One Maryland Republican, Gabriel Christie, said, The argument devolved to nursery rhymes. But my constituents believed them, so I had to vote accordingly. Ames's decision to turn a treaty question, a question of international diplomacy between America and the largest country in the world, to not only a negative attack, but a simplistic demonstration, and his opponents using the same type of attacks against motives, fantastic, assigning fantastic motives to Federalist congressmen, demonstrates that the type of appeals are not merely the product of the modern era. I said that if this is not included in the tax bill, then don't expect this senator to just go along, that I will do and use whatever method I can to see to it that we address that situation. And I do not intend to yield. It's part of Senate tradition that senators get up and keep on talking. We call it the filibuster. Here was New York Senator Alphonse D'Amato, and it's a pretty benign example of the use of this tactic. And I do not intend to just sit willy-nilly by and say, oh, there's nothing we can do. If you want to say, so long to New York, if it wasn't because we didn't have a plant that was deep down in the heart of Texas. That's right. It's in central New York. It's not in Texas. But those jobs, every bit as important. D'Amato wanted a special tax bill that would save jobs, particularly one factory in his state. Al D'Amato's filibuster helped his image, and he didn't have to tell his constituents, or broadcast at least at this time, that he had made all the arrangements to keep his filibuster, to keep his, his episode of talking and talking and talking for hours, tying up the business of the Senate. He didn't have to tell his constituents that he did this in a tidy way. He spoke at the end of the day and ended early in the morning when the Senate was not doing anything anyway. He spoke for defending our jobs. Far less benign than other uses of this important tactic. Better than, say, the record by Strom Thurmond of 24 hours and 18 minutes when he filibustered against the Civil Rights Act of 1957. Not even the strongest civil rights act to be public to be 
approved by Congress. Strom Thurmond, in trying to block that bill, he read George Washington's federal farewell address. He reads the Bill of Rights. He reads the Declaration of Independence. He's prepared. All week he took steam baths to dehydrate his body so it could require less fluid. He took cough drops. He would take quick breaks by allowing another senator to ask a question or even have a senator oppose to him, yell at him for what he was doing, opposing the Civil Rights Bill. Hey, he'd take the yelling. It gave him a break. At one point, Barry Goldwater, senator from Arizona, took his place so that he could take a bathroom break. He read the election laws of every single state in order. There were 48 states then, but still, it's a lot. So 24 hours and 18 minutes. It didn't work, and it was a waste of the Senate's time. Civil rights legislation of 1957 was popular. Eisenhower supported it. Vice President Nixon supported it. Majority Leader of the Senate Lyndon Johnson supported it. Soon-to-be President Senator Kennedy supported it with with a couple amendments. When there was an attempt to dismiss the bill, only 18 senators voted for that dismissal. That was a sign of how populist legislation was in the Senate, yet Thurman tried to stop it. That's the filibuster. Civil rights is really where the downside of the filibuster is best on display. Uh, There was a New Mexico senator who wanted to introduce civil rights legislation as early as the 1940s of the type that was passed in the 60s. Filibusters prevented it. The states of Alaska and Hawaii were both victims of filibuster or threatened filibusters. And one might say the filibuster is steeped in tradition, protection of minorities. Well, the entire Senate is designed to be protection of minorities in the Republic. But no one, the framers, not James Madison, not George Washington, not the ratifying conventions, no one imagined a filibuster, the one senator of that body being able to tie up the legislation. Now, its name invokes piracy of the legislative process that they set up. It's not in the Constitution, and it could not have happened by the rules that the nation adopted in the first Congress. Now, there is a line in the Constitution that each house will make its rules. So to that extent, that's the constitutional pathway for a filibuster happening. But it actually happens from what's left out of rules and not what's added. Rules were revised in 1806, and it dropped the rule of cloture because it just hadn't been used. And cloture prevented a senator from talking and talking and talking on a particular issue. It was actually a recommendation made by former VP Aaron Burr. Even when they make the the rule change to drop cloture, seeing that it's unnecessary, it's not used for anything. Until 30 years later, Andrew Jackson's president. He removes funds from the Bank of the United States. This upsets senators, Henry Clay, John Calhoun, Daniel Webster in particular outraged, and they pass a vote of censure of President Jackson. It's a condemnation by the Senate of the president. That document, which is simply page 552 of the Senate's 1834 journal, yellowed and ripped, is in the National Archives today. The upper chamber condemning the chief magistrate and saying, your action 
Well, this is what they say. Your action is anti-American. This is what it directly says. The president had assumed upon himself authority and power, not confirmed by the Constitution and laws, but in degradation of both. It's harsh, and it's supposed to be. It's censure. But supporters of Jackson were outraged and made continued attempts to overturn it, to remove that statement from the Senate Journal. One of them is Thomas Hart Benton, senator from Missouri, big supporter of Jackson. When Democrats get the Senate back in 1837, they had enough votes to remove or expunge that censure. There was very little that the Whigs, those who opposed Jackson, like Henry Clay, now in opposition, could do. So they just kept talking, tying up Senate business until the matter could be removed. But this was an early attempt. They hadn't perfected it well enough. And eventually, after tying up Senate business for a week or so, the Senate expunged that statement about Jackson. And what that meant, by the way, you hear that all the time. What is it? What, what is it? It meant that four black lines, a box, was written around the words in page 552 of the Senate's 1834 general. And there was a note that said, expunged from the record. Benton said these words at the time. Where in the world has there been a chief magistrate where so much evil was predicted and so much good came? He's about to be a private citizen. The political existence of this great man now comes to a close. The Senate filibuster became a weapon, even if it wasn't successful then. When the bank charter came up in 1841, the threat of a filibuster alone stopped it. Henry Clay was now in majority, but William Rufus King, a Democrat of Alabama, told Clay, if he tries to pass that bill, he may make his arrangement at his boarding house for the winter. They will keep the Senate tied up so long. The threat of staying in the dingy capital at that time alone could not have been pleasing. And Clay didn't have, he thought, the votes to stop such a procedure. You get to 1917, and it takes that long before there's even a cloture is even reestablished in the Senate. And at that time, you needed uh, 67 votes. It's 60 now. So... I tell this story about the filibuster to make the point that some traditions are fungible. Some traditions we may think of as having really long legs. I mean, some of them do, but their origins are actually not rooted in the history we might think. And norms have been broken at different points of American history for something that majorities feel needed to get done. America strikes back. Anthrax, another infection, this time at NBC News and Rockefeller Plaza. We will have this year the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And if the history of the terribly tragic day is told right, the way that it was experienced those weeks, the terrible event, of course, happened on that day. But right after it, something else happens that has nearly been forgotten. But it wasn't forgotten in 2001. It was this parallel event of letters being sent out with a dangerously biological weapon mailed in it. Inhaled anthrax. The spores of which can easily kill a human being. A Florida man has contracted a very rare and potentially deadly form of anthrax. It's mailed to media representatives, which made the whole story more personal, jarring, eerie. 
Then it's mailed to members of Congress. The U.S. House of Representatives is closing offices today until Tuesday to allow a complete sweep for traces of anthrax. And 29 staffers for Senator Tom Daschle's office have tested positive. Mailed from a strange address near Princeton, New Jersey, addressed as if it was coming from an elementary school, but the elementary school named was fictitious. It included ridiculous babble. Whoever authored the letters were trying to link these or have people think they were linked to 9-11. 9-11, this is next, capital letters. The first letter is mailed as early as September 18th, 2001, seven days after the events. Take penicillin now. Death to America. Death to Israel. Allah is great. On October 4th, Bob Stevens of American Media, related to the National Enquirer, is hospitalized with inhalation anthrax. He'll die the next day. He's the first American to die of anthrax in 25 years. The disease had supposedly been eradicated, existed only in biological labs. October 8th, the National Enquirer building is closed. By the 12th, anthrax hits NBC and an employee is hospitalized. On the 15th, they find anthrax in Tom Daschle's office. A New Jersey postal worker contracts anthrax. CBS employee, the same, tests positive on the 18th. We are a little more than a month away from the World Trade Center buildings coming down. And this happens. We're being attacked through our own mail system. Post office in D.C. will have to be clean for the next year. An employee of the State Department is in the hospital. Employee of a hospital tests positive for anthrax. An older woman from Connecticut, she's 94 years old, dies. She receives a letter to a random woman in Connecticut. The case is never truly solved. What is certain is that although it occurred in a time of attacks on America from external terrorism, it came from inside the United States. The Bush administration, per reports, pressured Robert Mueller to put the blame for it on an external foe, on al-Qaeda, according to an FBI source, In reports at the time, they really wanted to pin it on somebody from the Middle East. But its form resembled a lab-based anthrax, the Ames strain, developed from a cow in 1981 and held in various biological labs, including U.S. AMRID, the Army Medical Research Institute for Infectious Diseases in Fort Detrick, Maryland. A scientist had been suspected, Stephen Hadful, But eventually, prosecutors zero in on Bruce Ivins and is the most serious person of interest. He commits suicide. In describing his brother's personality, Thomas Ivins said he had in his mind that he was omnipotent. A series of sniper attacks targeting the D.C. area where randomly people are shot, particularly at gas stations, All of this combines to this kind of atmosphere of fear that you have. And just like in the case with Ivan's where it's most likely him and most likely because some kind of uh, revenge or or trying to make himself feel powerful, something like that. In the case of the sniper, it's the same thing. The anthrax simultaneously with 9-11 and to some degree the sniper attacks too created an environment of fear piling upon fear. That can't be separated on how everyone experienced the 9-11 attacks. That, that fear that you too, you personally can be a victim through the mails or through a bombing that might occur. And 
Those next two years were going to be an important time for decisions that the United States had to make, an important time for electing representatives. The Patriot is decided on at this time, the decision to go to war. So personal safety, freedom from violence is a very, it should be obvious, important part of free speech. It's not free speech if you get to speak it while you're ducking a bullet. So I was reading an interesting article from John McWhorter in the Atlantic Monthly, and it's back in 2020. He suggested that maybe the candidates Biden and Trump were really reading up on Sartre and Camus and French philosophers. And I can almost certainly tell you I know a few things about the inside of campaigns, but I don't think that was going on. But I think he meant it this way. Politics had gotten existential. Trump was to hear all the ads, an existential threat to the nation. So was a lack of civility. So was protests and bonfires. And McWhorter looked it up and noted that there were 1 million hits for the words existential threat in 2015, 2.3 million in 2019, 3 million in 2020. The grist had picked up on this trend too. Why is everybody sounding like chain-smoking French philosophers from the last century, it said. Now, I have to say, all of these people are getting probably the term existential wrong or Sartre's philosophy you know, wrong, that it's not existential, meaning your existence is in danger, but existential meaning, you know, you're responsible for your actions, the like, it's your life to live, no one else, you know, this kind of thing. But let's not get into that. Sanders uses the term existential threat related to climate change, and he gets taken to task by factcheck.com. But then the factcheck.com correction was also mocked, this during the Democratic primary, because you know, because factcheck.com had said most scientists don't think that all humans will die from climate change. It's not an existential threat. Okay, well, climate change might be a better case than electing one politician or not. But the point is existential politics is used often. You know, vote this way or everything will be destroyed that we cherish it's used often probably too much. I'm not going to say that there you can't make an argument that certain policies are going to be dangerous. And I'm not even going to say particularly after the events of the 6th that you couldn't even make the argument that uh, second turn for Trump would change democracy as we know it. I could have. Uh, or possibly you could have seen a disastrous six-year midterm like we normally get and render him completely powerless. It's really, you know, I'm not saying that either way. You know, there's a valid discussion there. What I am saying is that too much in politics, there is this idea, it's always existential threat for the other side of your position. And the problem is really that in this, you leave the field of reason and you're not the only one doing it. We talked about Fisher Ames. 
like one of his opponents accused him from leaving the field of reason and entering a new field, something different from political discussion. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. You can't think of political opponents as merely that if there is an existential threat. They are something else. And yes, it's such a powerful weapon and it's tempting. And I do disagree with the essence, if not the letter, of these recent articles. When Franklin Roosevelt took office, particularly when he begins implementing his New Deal program and Of all of them, the price setting for farm products and the National Recovery Act, the NRA, seemed to be the one that most bedeviled opponents. Opponents warned that these weren't just bad ideas that FDR was implementing. They were, in a sense, an existential threat to America. It starts with the previous president, Hoover. Herbert Hoover says these so-called deals would destroy the foundations of American society. It would lead the country on a march to Moscow. Roosevelt, for his part, taking over in a depression, felt that the old 19th century can-do individualism, if that wasn't gotten rid of, if there was no program that addressed what he felt was a complex economy and a necessary for some collective action, for some consideration... That it might not be a march towards Moscow, but a march towards one dictator that wasn't himself. FDR's position all along is that he had saved capitalism and saved democracy by his actions. When FDR was inaugurated, uh, something familiar happened. His fans, you know, to read the articles, his fans were happy to see him, hear his speech, but his predecessor was not. And how they thought about FDR's crowd for his inauguration speaks volumes. To FDR, the crowds were a conquering army. To Hoover, the men that he saw were a tough-looking crowd. Hoover left Washington by train, and by some accounts, sat to himself on that train and wept. And so initially, with the Republican Party, the official opposition scuttled with Roosevelt's incredible political win. It fell to other people. And so in 1934, the Liberty League was formed to oppose Roosevelt and the New Deal programs. And the significant thing about the Liberty League is that they're extremely well-funded, but also they had Democrats, including Democrats from New York, just like Franklin Roosevelt, Jacob Raskob, and most notably, former governor and former presidential candidate Al Smith as well as former presidential candidate John W. Davis, Nathan Miller, former governor of New York, and Congressman James Wadworth of the same state. All of them Democrats, and it's founded to protect the Constitution, to teach respects for the rights of property and person, to foster the right to work, to earn, and to save. But it didn't just have Democrats involved in this Liberty League. It also had CEOs, Alfred Sloan of General Motors, 
and Howard Pugh of Sun Oil were notable leaders of the movement. They signed 36,000 members to the Liberty League and had college chapters. About a third of the membership were at various colleges. They had a million-dollar budget, a lot in that time, put out over 150 pamphlets, and most of them were repeated radio addresses that the Liberty League had given to audiences. Either they bought radio time or sometimes they were invited by radio stations. There were also newspaper ads. In the 1936 president, it would spend two times as much as the Republicans spent on themselves. In fact, the GOP chair said that without the Liberty League funding, the Republicans wouldn't have an office in 1936. The League took a hard line against the New Deal and didn't mince words. The League said the New Deal was a trend towards fascist control of agriculture. Social Security wasn't just wrongheaded. It would mean the end of democracy. Roosevelt hit back. For him, this Liberty League organization was someone who remembered a few of the Ten Commandments and were men that loved thy God but forgot thy neighbor. The Liberty League's critiques went on, not just of policy, but of opponents changing the very fundamentals of the country. John W. Davis said that Congress would soon resemble the present Congress of Soviets in Russia or the Reichstag of Germany. He's talking in 1934, so that's charged rhetoric, but not as charged as it might be in the later 30s. Al Smith said... It can only be one capital, Washington or Moscow, and they have this rather large and elegant banquet, and the whole thing is covered on radio in the Mayflower Hotel, 1934, and this is going to be a big deal with Al Smith. He just had the presidential nomination before Roosevelt did in 32. This was going to show that the country... Democrats and Republicans were behind the Liberty League. We either have the fresh air of free America or the foul breath of communistic Russia. But while Smith's criticism is shocking, it should be said, and most people knew, if they knew New York and democratic politics nationally, that he had his ups and downs with FDR, and that FDR was never quite popular with the Tammany Hall or the bosses, the political machine of New York. Speech angered Democrats. They hit back. Joe Robinson, the leader of the Senate, said, Smith in that Mayflower speech had turned his back on the east side and took on the glitz of Park Avenue. Jim Farley, postmaster for FDR, said the Mayflower incident had been the biggest blunder of the Liberty League. To have this speech at an eloquent banquet when most people were starving. FDR's campaign manager said the league would squeeze the worker dry in his old age and cast him like an orange rind into the refuse pail. Opponents weren't above a little existential threat of their own. If the league was successful in getting Alf Landon elected president instead of Franklin Roosevelt in a 1936 election, they would be obliged to the Morgans and the Rockefellers, and workers would be cast aside. Well, in this battle, in the early going of Franklin Roosevelt's presidency, sure, the League was a little more going a little farther in the existential rhetoric, but they were the team that was down with the most points to make up. But isn't that the point? Does political necessity invent a new politics? 
So now you talk not just about this policy will be bad, even that it might, you know, cost a lot of money, bankrupt us in the future, but that it will lead to dictatorship or that there won't be an America anymore. It's envelope pushing, either in rhetoric and policy and norms. And we've seen a lot of it, you know, really a lot of it. I'm not just going to say in the last four years, but since even social media has been created. But some degree, if we stop looking at things through present eyes and look at politics at the time and how much it changed in those time periods, how much the politics of 1932, say, were different from the 1928 election, and how much 1936 was different from 1932, you'll see that envelope pushing, norm breaking is not altogether uncommon. So we got problems. And norm breaking could be one of them. But what's the problem anyway? If you have a set of beliefs, don't you want someone to fight for them? And you want the best fighter. Just like if you were in a court case, you'd want the Johnny Cochran, the Clarence Darrow, the best, the irresistible force to fight, 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 not a marshmallow. Why would you, on one side, concede anything? If the very concession, if the norm following doesn't help you win, why would you do it? Why not always have your opponent unsettled? Why ever stop? And I think those questions are being explored. They have to be looked at. At least if you want to understand what's going on, um, why people in politics don't use moderate language all the time, why certain norms are broken, why there's this value signaling and then reverse value signaling, if you will. Like, I don't have to do these norms, and I actually gain by not. If I'm going to turn over the keys of the administration to you, why should I make that easy? These aren't things I'm advocating. They're things I'm understanding that people may have this belief. Keep your opponent on their toes at all times. That's some of the strategies that are going on. There certainly are downsides to that. I think we saw it in the period after the November election. There might have been some small gain in trying to unsettle Biden's presidency, say, but I think damage was obviously done. So it's not like these strategies, you can just keep hitting the button on them, right? They're not perfect, but at least understand that they're there and why people are saying, why wouldn't you always fight? If you were for healthcare for everyone, why wouldn't you always in every discussion point out that there's people dying without healthcare just to be pleasant, you see? So at the time of the Bush administration, an official told Ron Suskin that he lived in the reality-based world. And essentially, you with your facts. You're going to be following us as we keep creating new realities and you try to create facts around them. You won't even know what we're doing before we figure it out. We've already created a new reality. It could have been Karl Rove. A lot of people say that he denies that he made this quote. You know, it didn't work in the 2006 midterms. In 2008, the Republicans lost the election. So whatever this official said to Ron Susskind that got so much press afterwards, you know, It wasn't a magic formula, but could it be the best hand in a bad deck? I'm kind of with an anonymous official to a point. I feel like the idea that politics is fact-based, that in other words, you come up with a list of items, like I'm for more health care for people, tax the rich, um, and 
you know, and then people do the calculus, yes, I agree with that, and that and that, I'll vote for you, is so far from the actual, you know, heuristics of decision-making that it's almost pointless, yet people aim their strategies there. Um, if you look at the historical events, even the recent events, it really seems to point more towards what that anonymous Bush administration official was talking about, that, you know, this is more like create your reality. I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. There's a lot of talk about this new theory, MMT, right? Modern monetization theory. And essentially, it's an argument against deficit arguments that America really can borrow a lot more than it is to fund certain programs. And I'm not going to get into a defense of the theory or even a critique of it. What I am going to say is it's highly doubtful to me that most people are reading the book on MMT and understanding every nuance of it. What I think is actually going on is that MMT creates a narrative that then allows people to go out and argue their positions with some foundation behind it or some safety net that they feel behind it. Yeah, it seems like the narrative stuff works better. Um, now, for individuals, for us, it's up to decide, of course, what we're comfortable with and what we're comfortable with are politicians saying? I mean, do you want to get that simplistic and cartoonish? Just do X and all your problems are solved. I don't. I don't do that for myself. I think there's a lot of people that don't. On the other hand, if you're going to analyze the reality of politics instead of some fictitious thing where it's like, you know, the Republican ideas and now the Democratic ideas and see who gets more votes... You know, let's put it this way. If I was running a campaign instead of doing a podcast about historical and political analysis, I'd want a strong narrative guy and not a fact checker. I also don't think it's anything new. You know, there might be more theories and books about it now. I think that the wire, the, the reason that there are Trump supporters is that he fights. That's what they're going to say every time. He fights. The others don't fight. He fights. I've always, for the six years or so that he's been in our political universe, have understood that and acknowledged it. Um, I look at it, I think it's going to be tough for somebody else to pull off. I really do. We'll see. There's other norms that have been broken over time. It used to be the president's delivered the State of the Union, not in front of Congress, but just in a letter to Congress, and Woodrow Wilson changed that. And he got a lot of flack for it. It was like, what are you doing coming to Congress? Are you some kind of dictator and the like? We talked about the possible norms that could be broken with the filibuster. You know, a breaking of norms invites the breaking of other norms. Maybe it's not all good, but I think it's, you know, there, there's also opportunity in it. Oh, this country faces its first second impeachment of a president. Now, that's simply fact because that's just majority vote of the House, and that happened twice with President Trump the first time ever. I think impeachments are now going to be into the norms. I really do. I think at some point you'll probably see in, a, in an impeachment. I, there's already um, one crazy vote for impeachment, but that's not what I'm talking about. I think you'll see it utilized as a weapon more. It's already the frequency of it increased just since Clinton that was already historic, totally norm-breaking when it was used during the Clinton presidency. One could have 
certainly and did make the argument then that that you're absolutely crazy to use a procedure we haven't used since Andrew Jackson to use that now. Crazy. But it was done. So you'll see that as a weapon and you'll see defenses to it. Second impeachment, Trump, uh, I think it's unavoidable given Trump's actions on the 6th or lack of actions. Either way, if you want to look at administration or maladministration, either way, the House needed to act. There wasn't much time. I don't think there would have been interest in a second impeachment otherwise. The Senate is the one that I believe punted because they could have acted on something quickly. But McConnell came out there and said, okay, I'm not going to do anything until at least the 19th, right before Biden is inaugurated. So, you know, I kind of, my view of that is that in effect, Mitch McConnell was keeping Trump in check. You better behave this last week because really if Mitch McConnell said so, um, as popular as Trump is in the Republican Party, there would be enough senators that Mitch McConnell would have that with the Democrats could push a conviction. So he kind of had Trump in check for that last week. I think that's what he did. So really, the whole issue that there's an impeachment after the 20th is kind of on the Senate a little bit. Um, not totally, because you could say, oh, he needed the time for the trial. But they took time to even start the process. So the House had impeached before the presidency. So it's not really the House that decided that, per se. There's also the open question, what happens if you have a president who misbehaves in the last weeks and with the powers of our presidency right now? And... So one way to look at that these are crazy times, the other way to look at it is these are precedent-setting times. You now have a precedent a bit to deal with this. I do think it's going to – I think it's going to be unconstitutional if it comes to the Supreme Court because it's a removal power. You can't remove someone who's not in office. Now, there is precedent on this. William Belknap, War Secretary for President Grant – and what he was doing is he had two partners and he gave them an important trading post under the War Department's control and they made a lot of money off it and gave Belknap regular payments totaling $20,000 in that time. Could be hundreds of thousands of dollars now. Congress started investigating this. And to be sure, it was Grant's political enemies in Congress and Belknap's political enemies in Congress who are investigating them. And you could even go as far as to say this is where things get so untidy in politics. It was members of Congress who didn't like that Belknap as war secretary had prosecuted um, Southerners who were trying to overturn Reconstruction governments, including the Ku Klux Klan. Now they're investigating him. On the other hand, there seems to be a lot of evidence pointing to the fact that Belknap did this and was receiving these payments. So what he does, he confesses to Grant, at least by some accounts, and then resigns immediately. But that does not stop the impeachment. In fact, the House goes on, does impeach him, it goes to the Senate, and he's acquitted, all after he had already left office. Probably going to hear more about Belknap now than ever, but here's the thing. Um, it was not adjudicated by the Supreme Court. So it wasn't brought before the Supreme Court because he was acquitted. And also, Belknap is not a president. And there is a, you know, a higher constitutional language, a con constitutional standard for presidents. If you're impeaching a president, we bring in the Chief Justice of the United States to preside. You may get a little loophole there. Now, what do you do if a president misbehaves? Well, I think 
you'd have to actually do a fast impeachment and trial. It would have to rise to the level that the Senate also agrees that the actions are egregious. But, you know, precedent is being developed as we speak. I still think it holds. It's not so much that everything's okay because things happened in the past, but it's just a simple acknowledgement. People had problems in the past as well. And there's been technological developments that are mostly what's going on here. Is it just simply one person? Well, then I would ask, how come, you know, it didn't happen in 2000 when Trump first tried to run for president, had the backing of Jesse Ventura and was bashing Pat Buchanan in debates? Is it just one person? I think it has a lot more to do with the technology. And guess what? We haven't even gotten to the point where we're talking about the effect of robots and drones who can be sent out to protest various things and events and how that's going to figure how we're going to settle that or artificial intelligence and its full effect on politics, which is probably coming. I want to thank you for listening. I don't think I solved a single problem in this episode. That's not the point. I can't do that, you know, but I wanted to at least discuss all of them. And I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Consider joining the Patreon. It can be as little as $3 a month. I really appreciate the people who are supporting me. Um, www.patreon.com slash mhcbuyp. mhcbuyp. Thanks for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.